Well, this morning we are continuing in our series through the book of Acts. In just the first two chapters, there's already been an unbelievable amount of action, drama, and intrigue. So here are a few of the highlights, if you have forgotten or if you've not been able to worship with us. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit in his absence. And then he ascended in a cloud out of sight after commanding the gathered disciples to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. Then the disciples uh, cast lots to determine who was going to replace Judas. The Holy Spirit arrived in the form of tongues of fire on the heads of the apostles, and they were immediately able to have the ability to speak multiple languages. Peter preaches to a diverse crowd of, of people in Jerusalem, and he was understood by everyone, regardless of their nationality or their native language. And then the early church begins to form by selling everything they had and sharing their resources they had in common, making sure that everyone had everything that they needed. And so what happens next? Well, as we turn in the text, I want you to remember a very specific event that we've probably all faced. Some, so, some of us more recently than others. And as I describe this event, I want you to take note of the emotions or the memories that come with the scene. So think back to your elementary school days, either PE class or the playground, specifically the time when it came time to choose teams. Captains have been picked, and all the kids line up in a row, shoulder to shoulder, and the choosing of teams begins. Now, regardless of whether you were athletic or not, there were a few key universal desires when it comes to the choosing of teams. First, if you were being chosen, you never wanted to be the last one picked. That either meant, and you knew this somehow as a first or second grader, that it either meant that you weren't very good at whatever sport you were about to play, or on a deeper level, maybe you weren't liked by anyone on the playground. Second, it was essential, if you were being chosen, to try to be on the same team as your friends. Now with, this, with these two desires and realities present in everyone, the ensuing chaos of the choosing of teams began to take on a life of its own. People would try and move up and down the line to be by their friends or to make sure they were seen by the captains at the right time, or to try and distance themselves from the people that they deemed unworthy or they knew were gonna get chosen last. No one wanted to end up last. The amount of maneuvering and finagling and politicking at times, downright viciousness among the line at the time of choosing of teams was enough to make a person feel like their dignity and worth had been left to rot there on the playground, all for the sake of a game of soccer or kickball. Now, does this scene evoke any emotions or memories in you? If your days on the elementary school playground are too far in the rearview mirror to remember, maybe you've spent time on social media recently, or you've watched a cable news program in the recent past. Our current culture doesn't feel too much different from choosing teams on a playground. People will do whatever it takes to either align themselves with their preferred team or distance themselves from anyone they feel is beneath them or unworthy to be on their team. 
regardless of the pain or destruction that may cause someone else. Now, Peter and John were faced with a situation that ultimately revealed who and what their new religious movement was all about. Turning to Acts 3, at some point following the day of Pentecost and the preaching of Peter to the crowd in Jerusalem, our text for this morning tells us that Peter and John were staying obedient to their Jewish roots and their Jewish heritage and were going to the temple at the appointed time for afternoon prayer. The text says at the ninth hour, or roughly around three o'clock in the afternoon. What transpires as they enter the temple is a scene that should be familiar to all of us. Luke, the author of Acts, gives us the behind the scenes biographical information of a crippled man laying outside the temple gate. Luke tells us this man was daily carried into the courtyard because he was born lame and crippled from birth, and he was unable to get there himself. His entrance into the scene seems to have happened simultaneously with Peter and John entering the temple courtyard too. Now the man, seeing these two men, Peter and John, goes to work trying to eke out his living by begging them for money, asking for alms. Now, while the scenario may be different, if you've been to Walmart anytime recently, or have taken the exit off of I-49 northbound onto Highway 412, you know what it looks like when someone is at their last option and is resorting to begging for money in a high traffic area. The crippled man knew exactly what he was doing. While he obviously had family or friends who carried him to the temple, he was still desperately in need. He was at his wit's end. If we look at the story that immediately precedes this one, at the end of chapter 2, we know that Peter and John were part of a small yet rapidly growing group of people who were committed to following Jesus in radical ways. This group of people just recently decided to sell all their possessions, pool all their money together, and then this disperse that money to their little community to make sure that everyone within the community had everything they needed. So Peter and John were not lying when they stopped and told the man, we don't have any gold and silver. We don't have any money to give you. What little money they may have had had already been given to their community. And I'm sure the man was disappointed. But he also had no way of knowing how drastically his life was about to change. Because even though Peter and John didn't have any money to offer him, or really want anyone else outside of their small, growing Christian community, they gave this man two very important things. One is very obvious. The other, I think, is a little more subtle, yet also life-changing. So first, the miracle of the healing man feels maybe less approachable and even less understandable in our current context of 2019. We don't hear of miraculous physically healing miracles very often. Not like this. But instead of focusing on the what of the miracle in terms of the scientific or medical change that took place in the man, I want to look at the how. How was the man healed? Very specifically and directly, Peter turns and says to the man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. Pastor and theologian Kevin DeYoung 
writes this about the name of Jesus. And this quote's a little long, but it really explains, I think, and gets to the heart about the name of Jesus. So he says this, Over the past 2,000 years, more people on planet Earth have known the name of Jesus than any other name. Since AD 33, over 8 billion people, by one estimate, have claimed to be followers of this Jesus. Today, the name of Jesus can be found in more than 6,000 languages, and more are being added every year. On the one hand, it's strange that the single name has dominated the past 2,000 years of world history, especially Western history. For most of us, the name of Jesus has a sacred ring to it. It sounds holy and divine. But that wasn't the case when Mary and Joseph followed the angel's instructions and gave their baby his name. Granted, it has special meaning, but it was not an unusual name. The first century Jewish historian Josephus mentions at least 12 different people he personally knew with the name Jesus, including four high priests. In Acts 9, we read of the Jewish false prophet Bar-Jesus. In Colossians 4, Paul mentions one of his fellow workers, Jesus called Justice. And some ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew refer to the robber released by Pilate as Jesus Barabbas, which can be translated, ironically enough, Jesus, son of the father. Dion continues, common as the name was, Jesus was named Jesus by design. In Greek, it's Jesus. In Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke, Yesu. Both are derived from Hebrew, in which the name is Yeshua or Joshua which is made up of two parts, Yah, short for Yahweh, and Hosea, meaning salvation. Mary and Joseph therefore gave the little baby the name Jesus, Yahweh saves. And ever since the first Christmas, Jesus has been more than just a name. It's been our only comfort in life and death, our only hope in a hopeless world. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you have life in his name, John 20, 31. There is, in fact, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved, Acts 4.12. So naturally, whatever we do, in word or deed, we ought to do in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3.17. And God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11. Dion concludes, let's be clear. The name of Jesus is not a magic wand. Chanting it does not give one special powers. The power in the name is the person behind the name. End of quote. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, member of the Trinity, begotten of the Father, fully God and fully man, is who healed the crippled man. Today, the church calendar is Trinity Sunday. Last week, we celebrated the gift of the Holy Spirit given to all those who believe and put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We read the story of that first happening dramatically with tongues of fire just a couple of weeks ago in our series in Acts. Today, we begin, we read the practical implications on earth for who the Trinity is. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is about the business of restoration and redemption. And they're about the glory of God themselves. In that moment, Peter and John, sent by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, were able to heal the man in the name of Jesus. And while his physical healing obviously takes center stage in the story, 
there are two more layers of redemption that take place as well. First, because of his inability to walk, the man had been unable to enter the temple to worship God as the Jewish custom required. He was alienated and separated from God. Yet after his healing, what does he do? Well, first he jumps up and leaps up like a baby deer learning to walk for the first time and begins testing the strength of his ankles and knees and legs for the first time. And then we're told that he immediately enters the temple, jumping and leaping and praising God. Right along with Peter and John. In the name of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit, the man was given the ability to worship God fully redeemed and restored physically. And the crowd was drawn into amazement too. In this scene, we catch a glimpse of all people beginning to hear, recognize, and praise the name of Jesus. And so the early church continued to grow. Secondly, before Peter ever uttered a word to the crippled man, he, along with John, stopped and not only noticed the man, but turned their eyes and full attention to him. And then they asked him to do the same and look at them. This was no small thing. As a crippled man in the first century, he was an outcast, overlooked by the crowd, shunned to the point of not even feeling free to make eye contact with those coming to a place of worship. Yet in that moment, Peter and John stopped and looked and actually saw the man. By seeing him and inviting him to look at them too, the man began to regain his dignity. Peter and John, by the simple act of seeing and engaging with him, even before miraculously healing him, bestowed dignity and honor on a man who had likely not felt such dignity and honor in his entire life. Why? Why did Peter and John think this was important? Well, I think having spent the better part of three years with Jesus, they had seen this modeled. And they had finally realized that the Yahweh whom they worshiped had seen their plight and through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus was still at work redeeming all of creation, including fallen humanity. As early as Genesis 16, God is given the name El Roy, which means the God who sees. This is first mentioned by Hagar, the mother of Abraham's first son, Ishmael. As Jewish men, Peter and John were very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. They would, have, they would have known well the numerous times God saw his creation and moved to redeem, correct, and lead people back to him. Our Old Testament passage for this morning is the story of creation on the sixth day. The triune God present at creation, God the Father creator, the spirit hovering over the deep, and God speaking words to create. As John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, referring to Jesus, the Trinity, eternally present, even in creation. And so God says on the sixth day, let us create man in our image. 
very clearly using the plural possessive pronoun our to delineate the unique and special characteristic of human beings made in the image of the triune God. And because all human beings have been made in the image of the triune God, all people, regardless of nationality, skin color, gender, sexuality, handicap, or any other label, have inherent worth and dignity. Peter and John modeled this truth for us by stopping and looking and seeing this crippled man. Yes, in the end, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, they were able to give the man physical healing. But the healing began by extending dignity and worth to this man, simply by taking the time to see him. The implications of this truth, all humanity having dignity and worth and being worthy of the redemption of God, is potentially really uncomfortable. When was the last time you had an opportunity like Peter and John? Obviously, I'm not asking when the last time was that you had an opportunity to miraculously heal somebody. Instead, I'm asking, when was the last time you had the opportunity to extend the love of Christ to someone simply by seeing them? The summer after my sophomore year of college, I had the opportunity to lead a week-long to lead week-long mission and slash immersion trips to the inner city of Houston. And during our two weeks of training before the summer began, we spent every day from morning till sundown visiting, serving, learning from, and immersing ourselves in the neighborhoods and ministries and organizations in the Houston area. For two weeks, we heard about the poverty, racism, crime, and other issues that were present throughout the city that we'd be taking youth groups uh, in to serve to. One morning, one Sunday morning during the two weeks of training after just being kind of overwhelmed by the sadness and the, de the decay and every, all the issues facing Houston, we were, our director took uh, myself and the five other people working with me to a very affluent, very large suburban church, which I will not name. But as we took the exit off the highway towards the church, I was struck after being immersed in the urban culture and the homeless culture of Houston, how many people were in the off-ramp holding up homemade cardboard signs asking for money. And then, what was more shocking, as we took the on-ramp back onto the highway following worship, was how many of those people had moved over to the on-ramp, hoping that after getting some religion, people would finally see them and give them some money. And yet everyone passed them by. You know, I mentioned earlier the people who sit at the entrance to the parking lot of Walmart behind the Waffle House, or who sit on park benches in our downtown, or who post up at the key interchanges of roads in Northwest Arkansas. When was the last time you, you took time to stop and look and really see those people? If you're like me, it's sadly been far too long. But are they not worthy of the dignity and respect? Are they not worthy of dignity and respect simply by being human beings made in the image of God? In the same way, our church partners at the Genesis House and Hunger and Thirst Ministries and the Mana Center, we provide funds on a monthly basis to help keep these ministries open and viable. But when was the last time you took time to stop, look, see, and get to know the people 
to whom our checks are going to every month? What about visitors to our church or people in our community who don't look like us? Peter and John left the comfort of their growing little community to pray. But on their way, they didn't ignore everyone else who wasn't in their group yet. But they stopped and they saw and gave what they had to this man who had nothing. So who are the people in our community who are on the margins, who often go unseen, especially by people who attend church? Are we willing to be like Peter and John? Are we willing to do the same, regardless of what labels or barriers we've previously built up to keep our distance from people who make us uncomfortable? The book of Acts is a story of the growth of the early church. It's not a comfortable story. At least it shouldn't be. It should inspire us and challenge us, motivate motivate us to live a more spirit-sensitive, Christ-centered, and God-worshiping life as individuals and as a church. Are we willing to listen to what God is saying and then move and act in ways that he's calling us to move and act? No, we, we, may not see the same rapid, we may not see the same rapid growth as the early church. And we may not see the same types of miraculous healings like we have in our story today. But we can start by taking the time to slow down in the name of Jesus, look, see, and extend love, grace, and dignity to those who are largely ignored, shunned, misunderstood, and marginalized in our community. My prayer is that God would ignite in us a passion for his glory, and that in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit, we would see lives radically changed, beginning with our own. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.